Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Happy Friday the 13th. Um, As always, I want to remind people that Friday the 13th is just like any other day of the week. There is nothing special about it. There's also nothing special about a full moon. I think someone was saying this morning that it's not only Friday the 13th, but also a full moon. Um, And so, yes, neither of those things is of any statistical relevance when it comes to uh, what happens during the day or even the evening. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. You can find me throughout the week on the Evidence-Based Radio Facebook page. I do do post things throughout the week there, so if you're looking for interesting science stories throughout the week, you can go there. Um, So yeah, and tonight I want to start out by talking about pretty much the most amazing thing that I've seen in a while, which is the movie Hidden Figures. So I was so happy to get to see this this past Monday. And I just have to say that if you have not seen it yet, you really need to. Um, This is, of course, the movie about the amazing work done by Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, during the early days of NASA. Now, of course, it's not completely uh, 100% accurate. They have made liberties, but most of it is pretty close to exactly how things went at that time. And it's a really well done movie. Now, I've talked about Katherine Johnson extensively before, and I've also talked about the others as well. And again, the movie is extremely well done. It's based in reality, which is a good start. And it's based on the real lives of these women. And of course, it includes some nice, realistic science. Now, my personal grasp of advanced mathematics isn't up to actually checking the work of the movie, but it's definitely persuasive as real science. They're not making giant leaps where I'm like, "Mm, no, that's not even a thing that could happen. So that's very exciting because real science is extremely rare in Hollywood movies. And it's also a wonderful thing to see three African-American women's lives and contribution to science being showcased. I mean, the movie has everything. It's filled with real science. It's about African-Americans resisting segregation and racism And it's about three women who are truly at the center of the story. They're not just accessories to men. I was saying to someone that I felt like even if you took all of the men out of the movie, most of the movie would still be there. And that is just so rare in Hollywood. And especially to have it be African-American women is just so uplifting and so exciting And I'm definitely going to see it at least once more in the theater. And yeah, just I cannot stop raving about this movie. Okay, so I had said last week that I was thinking of doing a show on dieting, but I think I'm going to put that off for tonight. Um, I wanted to talk about just some regular science-y type stuff because I realized that I had been out during the holidays and 
we did a special last week. And so I just wanted to get back to sort of some basic science stories. And especially since I found this one story that you may have heard of already, but maybe not, that is particularly cool. And so this is about researchers who have developed a centrifuge that is literally literally made out of paper and string. And this may not seem like that much of a breakthrough or a huge deal, but it's actually pretty huge. And it's one of those things that, you know, you look at it and you wonder, why on earth didn't someone think of this before? It's created the same way you'd create a child's toy that has a design on it that's visible when it's spun, basically. And so the paperfuge allows small samples of blood to be separated into its components, so the plasma and the red blood cells, and that is needed in order to do basic diagnostic tests that would otherwise be difficult in areas that lack electricity and, you know, any kind of real lab. The paperfuge makes it possible to run tests for infections such as malaria and HIV that are, of course, prevalent in these areas that lack comprehensive medical facilities. There are a billion people on this planet who live with no electricity, no infrastructure, no roads, and they have the same kinds of healthcare needs that you and I have, Manu Prakash, whose lab developed the Paperfuge told Wired magazine. In fact, the Paperfuge is even more efficient than some commercial centrifuges. A Statspin MP centrifuge, which is a common commercial appliance that you'll find on many uh, a lab bench, tops out at 15,800 revolutions per minute and takes up to two minutes to perform plasma separation. With the paperfuge, on the other hand, it reaches up to 125,000 RPM and can separate plasma in just 90 seconds. And of course, the stat spin weighs 5.5 pounds, costs thousands of dollars, and again, requires electricity. Now, this isn't the first time that someone has tried to create a better centrifuge that doesn't require electricity. Researchers at Harvard in 2008 used a repurposed egg beater to spin samples at up to 1,200 RPM. And in 2011, researchers at Rice University used a salad spinner to achieve 600 RPM. But again, both were much larger, heavier, less efficient, and more expensive than the paperfuge. We wanted a much bigger jump, Prakash says. For us, it wasn't about finding the first thing that worked. It was about pushing the limit. We wanted an absolute solution. After returning from a trip to Uganda, where Prakash saw a broken centrifuge being used as a doorstop, his team turned to the idea of harnessing some sort of toy that involved basic physics in order to create a centrifuge. They tried tops first, but they didn't spin for long enough or fast enough. And then they tried top 
uh, sorry, then they tried yo-yos and they had greater success, but they realized that that would be too much of a challenge for people because you really had to be skilled at throwing a yo-yo. The problem is you got to know how to throw a yo-yo, Prakash noted, and not just any throw, the best throw consistently. And ideally, you have to be able to set the yo-yo spinning again when it return without returning it to your hand. And so after over a year of trying, he could still not achieve the best record, which was only 4,000 RPM. And that had been set by a visiting researcher who just so happened to have been a former, former circus performer and a yo-yo master. And so the idea for the current design actually came this past year when Saad Bamla, a postdoc in Prakash's library, in his lab, um, who he admits wasn't particularly good at yo-yos, decided to think about childhood toys from India and recalled the whirly gig. And so that's what this is. This is the whirly gig. Um, and, you know, they're very simple and also very ancient toys. Um, you find them all over the world. Um, I always think about it as a toy from sort of colonial era America. That's the one that I kind of think about where it has kind of a, um, like I was saying before, it has a symbol on it. And when you spin it, the symbol changes. Um, there's ones where it's, it's similar to the ones that spin around and, um, in the other direction. And so like you can see sort of there's a bird on one side and a cage on the other side. And when you spin it, the bird looks like it's inside of the cage, that kind of a toy. And so a button or disc is strung on a loop of string. Very simple. So when you pull the looped ends, the string winds around itself and sets the button or disc spinning. Continuing to pull on the string causes it to wind and unwind keeping the disc spinning back and forth, first one way and then the other. Though traditional centrifuges only spin one way, the back and forth spinning is just as effective. And even though he'd found what seemed like an ideal solution, it wasn't just that easy. Nothing in science or in development of this sort is just, oh, we found it and now it's perfect. They needed to actually create the perfect paper fuge. And so one of the things they wanted was background on the physics and the properties of what was going on. And so when they went to the literature to find papers on this, um, they found that there were very few that had analyzed or described the mechanism of the toy. And the one that did, it, you know, had some nice math in it, but it had just kind of scratched the surface. It hadn't really been thinking about how to use this as a tool because, <laughs> you know, to them it was just a toy. And so they had to do the work themselves using high-speed cameras and developed a theoretical model to discover the secrets of the whirligig. And so what they discovered was the that the toy uses a phenomena called supercoiling to gain its remarkable speed. And so you may have noted this before, when a cord is twisted, it reaches a certain point where the twist begins to form a new coil over the original twist. This allows the string to store more energy in order to produce the large amount of RPMs the disc is able to obtain. And so then they had to build a prototype and test it. 
and they tried several materials for the disc, including balsa wood and various plastics, but eventually settled on a synthetic paper that Prakash had previously used to design a microscope called the Foldscope. And so this was sort of his second foray into this um, area where he was designing sort of low-tech solutions for these kinds of things. And so the fold scope is actually powerful enough to see microorganisms, but it also costs less than a dollar. And as the name might suggest, it's based on origami. Now, the nice thing about this is that the paper is waterproof and very strong because it's coated on both sides with polymers. It's actually the same paper that many countries use to print their money. And so once they had a design, the next step was field testing. And so Prakash and Bamla recently returned from a trip to Madagascar. And Bamla noted that he thought people would laugh at first, but he was very wrong. One woman, a diagnostic technician specializing in malaria, has been working in the area for 15 years. She told them, You think you know. You think you understand the need for this tool. But you don't understand it like I do. I've been looking for something like this for years. She went on to explain that in the past, they'd had to transport centrifuges to remote villages using a jeep for transporting not only the bulky machines, but also the generators required to power them. Now she would be free to simply slip a paper fuge in her pocket and go into these remote places and do her job. And so I think it's a really great lesson to learn that even though we here have all of this amazing technology at our fingertips, we have to remember there are millions of people on earth who have almost nothing in the way of technology beyond what honestly could be found in a medieval village. And so not only do we have to think about things in those terms, we have to think about simple things that are cost-effective and are manual solutions to these problems so that we can help people and lift them out of having to deal with these sorts of things without having to wait for them to gain the kind of infrastructure that we have. And especially since there's all sorts of other issues with bringing you know, electricity and infrastructure to everyone in the world. That's a whole, <laughs> um, you know, day's worth of discussion of pros and cons and trials and tribulations. Um, and so the more that people can work on this, and I think that one of the other things that um, I really like is that even though they're working in America, um, I think both of these men are from India, and um, I know that India is really known for doing, having people who are able to come up with these sorts of low-tech, high-importance um, machines and um, mechanical gadgets and things like that. And so um, it's really interesting to be able to get that sort of different perspective. Because I think that a lot of times, and especially here in America where we have everything that we need a lot of times... Obviously, a lot of us don't, but um, compared to people in 
really remote villages in the middle of nowhere. We have a lot. Um, and so we think about, we don't tend to think about how can we make something simpler and easier. And so, you know, when you look at that paper fusion, you think, oh, why didn't we think of that? And it's like, well, we didn't think of that because we have a $4,000 or however much centrifuge sitting right there. So why would we need this? Um, and so I'm really glad that there are researchers out there who are thinking in this sort of um, way. So that makes me feel a little bit hopeful, trying to find the silver lining in uh, the world these days. Okay, so let's switch, switch gears now to something that is a repeating theme on evidence-based radio, which is the amazing discoveries just waiting for an intrepid researcher to find in the specimen rooms and collections of museums. So you've probably heard of seahorses before, but have you heard of sea dragons? Sea dragons are even more unique in some ways than seahorses. They tend to have frond-like appendages that help them camouflage themselves in the kelp and seaweed where they make their home. They have long, thin snouts, slender trunks covered in bony rings, and thin tails that don't grip the way that seahorse tails can. And so there are two species that are found commonly. The leafy, which grows to up to just about under 14 inches, and the weedy or common sea dragon, which grow up to 18 inches. Now, all sea dragons inhabit the oceans around the southern and southern eastern coasts of Australia. And of course, with those frond-like appendages flowing around them, they are masters of camouflage. And so they look just like the seaweed and kelp. And so it's actually hard to see them sometimes. And they also don't have particularly powerful fins. So they tend to sort of tumble and kind of um, just float around in the water. As with seahorses, the sea dragon males are generally in charge of childbearing. Now, instead of having a pouch the way that sea horses do, they actually have a spongy brood patch on the underside of the tail where the female deposits bright pink eggs during mating. They then fertilize and incubate the eggs for four to six weeks. Now, it turns out that there is a third species of sea dragon, quite distinct from the leafies and weedies and it's been hiding in a museum waiting to be discovered. So marine biologist Greg Rouse and graduate student Josephine Stiller of Scripps Institution of Oceanography at San Diego State, along with marine biologist Narita Wilson of the Western Australia Museum, discovered the third species, which they've named the ruby sea dragon. And so when they were analyzing, they found it when they were analyzing decades old specimens. And so originally they were actually researching the more common sea dragons as part of a broader population genetics program. And so what happened was that they were alerted to the um, possibility of there being a new 
um, species when some of the DNA sequences from the samples ended up looking rather different. So they then asked for the original specimen to be sent to them. The museum photographed the specimen before it was preserved in ethanol, and that allowed them to see that the fish was a red color. We're now in a golden age of taxonomy, and these powerful DNA tools are making it possible for more new species than ever to be discovered, said Rouse, who is also the curator of the Scripps Benthic Invertebrate Collection, that such large charismatic marine species are still being found in ev is evidence that there is still much to be done. This latest finding provides further proof of the value of scientific collections and museum holdings. Now, Stiller confirmed the uniqueness of the original specimen while looking at a CAT scan that had been assembled into a 3D model. She noted that the specimen had several skeletal differences from the more common sea dragons. And so after this first one was discovered, they actually looked for other versions of the um, sea dragon, and they were able to find three other um, samples of the sea dragon. And so it was very cool that they were able to find these. And so um, they then, um, sorry, they then realized that they should definitely try and find a new, um, find them in the wild. And so Wilson found a second specimen in the Western Australia Museum's collection. This new sea dragon first entered the Western Australian Museum's collection in 1919 and lay unidentified for almost a century, she noted. Meanwhile, Stiller found two specimens archived in the Australian National Fish Collection. And so they actually have named it scientifically um, Philopteryx deweysii. And that is in honor of Mary Dewey White, who is co-founder of the Lowe Family Foundation, which funded the research. I've always been fascinated with marine life, especially sea dragons. So this is an amazing discovery, White stated. People always talk about going to outer space, but they forget about the ocean we have here on our own planet. For me, ocean conservation and research is paramount. And we need to do what we can to encourage and nurture ocean exploration. Clearly, this is a woman uh, who is near and dear to my own heart. <laughs> so again, the next step after discovering this species in the museum was to try and locate them in the wild. And actually, if you want a full log of the search, you can actually go to the Tumblr page that they created for this um, expedition. So it's rubyseadragon.tumblr.com. And I'll actually put a link on the Facebook um, after the show. Um, I just think it's really interesting. There's actually quite a few um, science-based uh, Tumblrs that are actually from like real, um, the NSF has one. And, you know, I, I tend to think of Tumblr as a place for, you know, cute pictures or 
other things like that, not really serious things. Um, but there is this great Tumblr about their expedition. Okay, so again, they knew that the uh, fish was red, and they also had some information about the trawlers who actually were the ones that collected the um, original specimens. And so all of this suggested that the species probably lived at a lower depth than its more well-known cousins. And so using information about the locations of known catches, the researchers decided to zero in on the area around Bremer Bay off Australia's southern coast. Because of the suspected depth, they brought a small ROV to explore the area in search of the elusive beast. And so during two 30-minute dives with the ROV, they were able to watch two ruby sea dragons in their natural habitat, which turns out to be, pretty much as expected, quite different from the leafy and weedies. They inhabit a sparser environment that researchers refer to as a sponge garden habitat. And they were able to confirm that the ruby sea dragon does not have frond-like appendages. Um, the specimens they had didn't have them, but they weren't positive that they hadn't been, um, you know, damaged when they were pulled up or, you know, when they rolled around because one of the specimens had actually been found dead on a beach. And so they were able to confirm that they don't have fronds. And this, of course, makes sense because at the depth where they are living, there isn't any kelp or seaweed, and so it would be useless for them to waste the energy creating fronds that weren't actually good for camouflage. But there were actually some surprises. that They found, for instance, that the ruby sea dragon's tail is curled, much like that of seahorses, and may actually very well be prehensile. And again, this would make sense for the differing environment. The sea at this depth is more turbulent, and so they may need to use their tail as an anchor when the water is rough. In addition, they also have much more muscular pectoral fins, again, for handling rougher waters. They suspect, though, that their diet is largely the same, using their long snouts to slurp up mycids, which are tiny shrimp-like crustaceans. Now, there are still many questions to ask about all of the species of sea dragons, but this population genetic research should shed light on some of these questions. And again, Rouse notes that, if we hadn't had those museum samples to look at, this discovery wouldn't have happened. Okay, let's take a break, and then we're actually going to come back and talk about one more new species found in a museum recently. And then we'll talk about some other things. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 
Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Every day in the electronic media, people talk, or more likely yell, about politics. We do things differently. Our job is to talk about the things that we hope will be of interest to you without all the shouting and anger. We hope to provide facts and have reasonable discussions about the issues of the day. That is to disagree without being disagreeable. Join us every Friday at 7 p.m. for Civil Politics here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton or anytime online at civilpoliticsradio.wordpress.com. Hey, Lieutenant Colonel Reverend Eubanks, Juni the Third here. Your humble host of the Double Bubble Hour, now on every Sunday night from 8 till 9 p.m. WXOJLP 103.3 FM, or tune in on valleyfreeradio.org. 3,600 seconds of fun. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, and I definitely would recommend getting a flu shot if you haven't yet. I know that um, actually on the West Coast they're having a huge issue because pretty much everyone is sick. Um, and so they most of them actually have some sort of flu Um Someone I watch on uh, the internet, on YouTube, he's been struggling with flu for about a month and a half now. <laughs> so definitely to decrease your chances of getting it, 
definitely, if you have not already, go get your flu shot. Okay, so let us get back to museum specimens. And so there is also a detailed description of a new species of beetle, uh, Bryonides graphii, which appeared in the January 5th issue of the journal Zoosystematics and Evolution. The beetle comes from Samoa, and it's described using a single male specimen gathered by the Swiss zoologist and naturalist Dr. Edward Graf, collected during his time in the region, which was between 1862 and 1870. <laughs> the other two members of this beetle genus were also single finds, collected in 1924 in Samoa by Edwin H. Bryan Jr., and he was part of the Bernice P. Bishop Museum in Honolulu, and apparently they had a South Seas expedition in 1924 that went out and collected um, specimens. And so the new beetle was described by Cornell University professor James Lieber. And, of course, he answers the question that all skeptics have about, you know, a new beetle from one single beetle that you found basically in a box somewhere on a shelf. What is the advantage of knowledge about species that existed some 90 to 150 years ago, but no longer? It might actually point us to the actual level of impact mankind has on natural ecosystems. The cause of the likely extermination of Bryonides graphii might never be known with certainty. However, the colonization of many Pacific Islands by the Polynesian rat has always been followed by the diminution or elimination of native insect species. Thus, we can add another likely victim to the list of species that have been adversely impacted by mankind's commensal voyagers. And while this might sound a bit depressing, it's important to remember that we have this specimen because naturalists had the presence of forethought to preserve them for future generations. And so I think it's important to remember that and to remember how important these museum collections are. Um, so yeah. Um, oh, I wanted to make a programming note. There probably will not be a live show next week. I am most likely going to be out east for the... Uh, Women's March in Boston. Um, I really want to go to the DC one, but that just isn't going to happen. But I think that I can get myself to the Boston one. And so, um, unfortunately, no live show because fortunately for me, I have family out there that I can stay with. So if I go out Friday night, I don't have to get up at the crack of dawn on Saturday. So, yes, um, but I will be back as regular in two weeks. Okay, so let's do one of my favorite things. Again, I'm trying to make this very happy and light, um, given everything else that's going on in the world. And so I love talking about these things where people have made ridiculous headlines and have talked about this like it's some sort of crazy thing. And to be able to say, well, no, really, it's just something super cool, but not that crazy. And so I want to talk about mice 
and lasers and killing. <laughs> and so there have been several reports that researchers have used lasers to turn mice into killers. And of course, this is mostly just clickbait descriptions of real research. But even the most uh, sort of staid of uh, journals really were sort of hyping this up. Uh, the magazine Science's headline was Lasers Turn Mice into Lethal Hunters, which is actually pretty much the closest to the truth that you're going to get from some sort of, uh, you know, hyperbolic uh, headline. And so what the researchers actually did was to use laser light to stimulate regions of the brain of those mice that led the mice to display predatory actions. So yes, this led them to then predate grasshoppers or other items in their area, but it did not turn them into crazed murderers. They only pounced on perceived prey items. Now, previous research had discovered that the central amygdala, an almond-shaped area of the brain which is involved in producing emotions, was activated when rats were hunting. Researchers were trying to determine if the amygdala controls those hunting behaviors, and this new research suggests that the answer is possibly yes. So, led by Yale neurobiologist Ivan D. Orojo, the team used optogenetics to study the mice. This is a process wherein the mice are infected with a virus that causes their neurons to become sensitive to blue light. The researchers then insert a tiny optic fiber into the area of the brain and shine blue laser light onto that area in order to stimulate it. Stimulating the amygdala caused the mice to tense their jaw and neck muscles. The first thing we thought was, maybe this was just generalized aggression, or maybe we just made the mice very hungry, said De Rojo. So they went on to test different scenarios. When they were with another mouse, they might have been more curious, but we didn't observe any attacks, he noted. So again, it didn't turn them into murderous killers. It simply stimulated them to hunt prey if available. Kay Tai, a researcher at MIT who was not involved in the study, notes that this is a really interesting um, result. It's not just physiological. It's hunting, biting, releasing, and eating. Those are motor sequences that require a lot of information. So it's remarkable you can get this behavior with that sort of gross manipulation. Now, the amygdala has traditionally been associated with fear responses in animals and with flight and escape. And so this behavior seeking and hunt this behavior seeking and hunting is the opposite of that reaction. And so it's pretty interesting to try and figure out exactly what's going on here. And um, so one of the things that they um, are hypothesizing is that it might be that there are sort of programs running in the background and the amygdala kind of is a switch to sort of turn on the flow of those programs that are already working in the background. Um, but obviously, a lot more research is going to need to be done. 
And again, no crazed killers have been created. There is no mad science here. Um, well, there might be depending on how you feel about um, animal testing, which is another discussion for, again, another day. Um, but I've actually been watching a lot of um, old sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s recently um and so some of them are pretty hilarious in the sort of crazy mad science stuff that happens and um this is definitely much much more uh regulated much more controlled uh there will be no armies of uh genetically modified uh killer mice <laughs> escaping from a lab anytime soon <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to talk about another animal. This story is brought to you by Tequila and the Lesser Long-Nosed Bat. <laughs> it turns out that blue agave, from which tequila is made, is the favorite food of these bats, and they were once endangered, with a population reduced to only around a few thousand. They were actually listed on the endangered species list of Mexico in 1994, and they were added to the list for America in 1998. And now they've made a remarkable comeback with a population that is now up to around 200,000 animals. They've been so successful, in fact, that the lesser long-nosed bat is now on the list of species that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing to have delisted from the endangered species list. Now, this is in thanks to an effort by conservationists in conjunction with tequila producers to allow the bats to have access to the blue agave that they require to survive. They drink its um, nectar. Many entities in both the U.S. and Mexico have worked tirelessly toward recovery, and this announcement stands as testimony that dedicated efforts and sound management practices can lead to recovery of endangered species, said Jim DeVos, Assistant Director of Wildlife Management at the Arizona Game and Fish Department, in a um, press release this past Thursday. Much of the turn, much of the turn came can be attributed to the efforts to create bat-friendly tequila. And so farmers have been um, asked and have been working on leaving some portion of their um, crop with the flowers to be allowed to bloom naturally in the fields rather than what they had been doing, which was prematurely harvesting them. And so by allowing the agave to mature and bloom naturally, this actually helps bat populations and it also helps to create a healthier and more diverse crop. And so much of the publicity and awareness of the importance of the bats can be attributed to Rodrigo Mendeyin, a professor of ecology and conservation at the Institute of Ecology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Nicknamed the Batman of Mexico, he worked to create greater public awareness of the importance of the bats in the desert ecosystem and in creating good tequila. Now again, for many years, farmers had cut the flowers before they bloomed, seeking to boost the agave's sugar content. This meant that they were growing a monocrop a mono of identical plants, basically. 
and as often happens with monocultures, the crops were eventually decimated by diseases caused by a mix of fungus and bacteria. And so after that, Mendeyin was able to convince some of the farmers to begin to set aside 5% of their land for flowering agave. And of course, the uh, results are pretty impressive. And so even major producers are starting to offer bat-friendly versions of the product. And so if you're a drinker of tequila, um, I am not, but if you are and you see something, you see a brand that has some sort of branding about being bat-friendly, do try and buy that. And um, that will be really helpful to show that not only can this be a um, ecological success, but a commercial success as well. This is nothing short of a dream come true, Mendeyin told National Geographic in the fall of 2016. It will help save the bats and tequila at the same time. Because, of course, having more diversity in the agave plants keeps them from potentially being wiped out by some sort of disease. Because as we know, one of the problems with modern agriculture is monocrops, where everything is genetically similar or, in fact, identical. And so if a disease gets through that, um, gets through to one of those plants, they can all then die. It's the reason why we have such trouble with bananas, for instance, which I've talked about before. And um, just in case you're not excited about bats in general, they're pretty much all around good for you, the environment, for farmers. They eat tons of insects, and I mean literally tons of insects that bite humans and destroy crops. They are excellent night pollinators. And frankly, a lot of them are really just adorable. Um, and I know some of you won't agree, but I think that it's that they tend to be really cute. Um, especially the sort of more fuzzy ones and the bigger um, kind of fruit bats. Okay, bats deserve our thanks and our installation of bat boxes to encourage them to hang out and eat mosquitoes, beetles, uh, moths, and all sorts of other annoying pests. And, um, yeah, and so anything that we can do to encourage bats is good. They're kind of like spiders. You don't really like them, but you like the fact that they're eating the flies and other things um, that you don't want around. But with bats, they're not in your house, usually, and they're also much cuter, usually. (laughs) Okay, now... What's cool is that Mendeyin himself isn't just interested in bats. He's also working on saving Mexico's jaguars, which have plummeted in population to just around 3,800 animals in the wild. And he's also working on getting CITES protection, um, or C-I-T-E-S, protection for the thresher and silky sharks. Now, CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. And so what that is, is that it's one of those um, multi-country sort of conventions that seek to limit the import and export of animals that are endangered and are protected under the convention. 
So for instance, rhino horns and elephant tusks are prevented from being exported or imported in most circumstances. And so that is very good and important work as well. Okay, so we're going to talk now about the moon, because why not? <laughs> we started the night talking about hidden figures and the beginning of the space race that led to getting to the moon. So it's only fitting to talk about uh, the moon at the end of the program. And so hopefully we're going to be learning even more about the moon. It is really funny that, you know, it's the moon and everybody sees it every day, pretty much. Um, unless you live somewhere where there's a lot of um, cloudiness all the time or uh, terrible smog, or you just aren't up at night. Um, but, you know, in general, we see it a lot but we don't really know all that much about it. Um, it's really interesting to think about something that's so close and yet so far away too, because, um, you know, watching that movie and seeing how hard it was to get someone just into orbit, never mind getting people to space. Um, and it's really funny because, again, I've been watching these sci-fi shows, uh, these old sci-fi movies, and so many of them have these... Um, you know, the storyline is, well, we have these colonies on the moon and now we're going to Mars or somewhere else. Um, and it's really interesting, especially the ones in the 50s where they still thought that um, Venus might be uh, more Earth-like. Um, and so um, I think it's first, first Rocket to Venus or something like that, the name of the movie. Um, and it's really funny because they land on, land on Venus, quote unquote, and it's basically pretty much just, you know, uh, Southern California, <laughs> um, which clearly is where they were taping it. And um, and so it's really funny because they're, you know, walking around um, in this place and it's very Earth-like. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you really want to see sort of retro futurism um, at its best, those sort of 50s sci-fi movies that involve space travel are pretty much your peak uh, retro futurism. <laughs> okay, but let's get back to actually talking about the moon. Um, so there is a new hypothesis published this past Monday in the journal Nature Geoscience, which suggests that the moon may not actually be due to the impact of a large Mars-sized object with the early Earth. And that's sort of the theory that's been out there um, for a while. And so this proposes that it was rather a series of small impacts that created smaller moonlets, which eventually coalesced into what we now know as the moon. And so this big impact is a very, um, it's a very popular hypothesis right now, but it doesn't account for one of the very big puzzles of the single impact theory. If the Earth was hit by an object the size of Mars, why is the moon almost identical in its isotopic signature to Earth? And so it would mean that either the object was so solid that it didn't lose any matter during the impact, which is a highly unlikely scenario, or we're missing something. Now, perhaps we just haven't found the correct samples of the moon's surface to show a different signature. 
But right now, what we have is very close to Earth. And so a team led by Raluca Rufa, an astrophysicist based at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovo, Israel, ran 864 simulations of the nascent Earth being bombarded by space objects much tinier than that of Mars over millions of years. It showed that this would create a debris field filled with small moonlets that might have eventually coalesced into the moon. Now, this theory would solve the isotope problem. By having smaller impacts, the debris left by the objects would be at a lower ratio to the overall ratio of Earth debris, and thus as the moon coalesced, it would be overwhelmingly made of the same materials as found on the early Earth. Gareth Collins, a planetary scientist at Imperial College London who wrote a explanatory piece to the study, notes that the moon becomes a blend of multiple compositional signatures rather than two, and so the effect of each impact on bulk composition is reduced. It is rather like mixing colors. The more distinct colors you add, the less change each one makes until the result is dark brown. Now, of course, more research is needed before it can be decided which scenario actually works the best. Um, And so Rufu uh, plans to continue with her simulations. We will test the merging process of these moonlets to understand what is the mixing efficiency of individual moonlets within the final moon, she told Motherboard. And hopefully we'll also soon be getting fresh samples from the moon if all goes well. For instance, China is set to send its Chang'e 5 to the moon to gather samples by the end of 2017. And so perhaps these new samples will give us new insight into the history of our one and only moon. (laughs) So yeah, um, very cool. And it would be really cool to go back to the moon. Um, I obviously have mixed feelings about manned space flight. Um, and I think that obviously, as I've mentioned earlier in the program, I prefer, um, to explore the ocean. Um, but I think learning more about the moon would be really cool. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. So again, I will be back in two weeks. Um, and hopefully nothing, uh, huge in the world of science will happen next week. Um, but if it does, I'll try and explain it in two weeks. <laughs> um, okay. So have a great weekend and, um, I will talk to you soon. Good night.